Welcome to Conversation 360 Podcasts and this second series of Asia and the West. I'm your host, Susan Bird. On Asia and the West, we showcase people whose life, work, and experience shed light on what's taking place between these two critically important parts of our world. We're especially focused on China, and you'll hear from people with fascinating things to share about other parts of Asia as well. In a historical sense, for China, but also for the world, this is a major historical initiative. China is investing in the order well over $2 trillion in the regional economy and in the world economy, demonstrating a, a commitment and a confidence in the regional and, and global economy in relation to which the Marshall Plan of the United States, 1950s Europe, and the Alliance for Progress, um, 1960s, Latin America, Caribbean, pale in significance. Mm -hmm. Because this commitment is far, far larger. That was Jan Neverveen Beterse. He's Melichamp Professor of Global Studies and Sociology in the Global and International Studies Program at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He's talking there about China's major proposed undertaking under Xi Jinping, which is part of that country's One Belt, One Road plan to extend the reach of China beyond its own borders, externalizing China's influence to Central Asia and Southeast Asia with roads, railroads, high-speed rail, pipelines, and new ports, a huge undertaking. Jan is a big thinker. He specializes in globalization, development studies, and cultural studies, and he knows China like no one else with whom I've spoken. Born in Amsterdam, Jan speaks five languages and is a prolific author. In fact, he's got four new books all coming out this year, and I believe every one of them is related to China and Asia. When you take a look on the web for information about Jan Neverdeen Pateras, you'll see that we are lucky indeed to have his participation on Asia and the West. I feel fortunate to be able to bring you such a variety of people in these conversations, and how they come to participate is often a story in itself. This is one of those. Some of you know that I was a TED resident last year and spent a lot of time at TED's headquarters in New York. I often got in conversation with a terrific young woman who's a content specialist at TED. She's wicked smart, speaks four languages, always fun to engage in conversation with her. Her, and her name is Kim Neverdeen Pateras. When she heard about my Asia and the West podcast series, she said, oh my gosh, you should include my dad if you can get him. He's held professorships all over the world, including China, speaks on all the continents, is in great demand, And but I think he'd participate if I asked him, and he would be really a great source for you for this podcast. I know he'd like what you're doing. So she did ask him, and thank you, Kim, for introducing me and all our podcast participants to your amazing father. You'll hear that Jan Neverdeen Pateras is clear-eyed about the challenges facing China, and one of them, of course not unique to China, is its growing income inequality. It is approximately the most unequal society in Asia, on a par with Singapore and, and Hong Kong. It's a major cause of concern in China, 
Another issue is capital flight. The secession of the rich, the wealthy middle class feeling insecure politically, economically, environmental issues, educational issues about conditions in China, moving overseas when they can afford it for their children to have better education and so forth and better opportunities, that is a really serious sign, serious trend, and it is related to the trend of capital flight, which Chinese government is very, very concerned about. Nevertheless, China is poised to have greater global influence, especially in light of what could be a vacuum in Western leadership. Jan says already China is greening enormously. With the United States, the Trump administration uh, less committed or no longer committed to environmental uh, accords such as the Paris Accord, China has stepped up and said, we are committed to this and and to lead in, in, in this. And no doubt, this is quite, quite serious. Jan cites those who view China's continued growth as a good thing. For example, a colleague in China who points out that in light of the fact that China is a fifth of the world's population... When China is okay... The world will will be okay because China is a fifth of the world population and because when China is successful and prosperous and stable, the world will be successful and prosperous and stable. There are in, in China vast resources of commitment, drive, industriousness and smarts that... Uh, we are probably underestimating. Jan points out that the enormous initiatives that China has undertaken in some ways reflect the original Silk Road of ancient China and the economic and cultural power that flowed from that development. In this podcast, Jan places China and the West in a meaningful future context from his informed global perspective. I know you're going to find this informative, provocative, and challenging. I spoke with Jan from New York by phone. He was in his office in Santa Barbara, California. So when we talk about conversations taking place between Asia and the West, what does that mean to you? Well, conversations are taking place constantly on so many levels, culturally, economically, policies and politics, there is a constant, look, there has been, Susan, there has been an East-West osmosis for thousands of years, which had shaped the West, and it has shaped the East, and it takes the form of, so to speak, an ascending spiral. It goes from level to level, and this osmosis goes back to the ancient jade road of trade, uh, the jade gate, that is the gate through which China obtained jade in Central Asia, and then the ancient Silk Road of uh, the Bronze Age 
and of Roman times, and then uh, much later after the fall of the Roman Empire, the Silk Road declines, but resumes around 500 common era with trade from the Middle East going to the East and to China, and then many Muslim traders, merchants settle in China, and then at a later stage, around 1100, 1200, the Tang and Song dynasty, the trade begins to move from east to west and is then called in the classical term the Silk Road. Mm-hmm. So you could give us a whole history lesson on this. You, you've really made it your life's work to understand globalization and culture and have literally written the book, I should say books, on this vast subject, several of which are used as textbooks, as I understand it now, in colleges and universities across the globe. And I notice you have four new books coming out in just this next year, of which you are either the sole author or a co-author, and it is significant that all of them focus on Asia, especially China, Uh, China's contingencies in globalization, capitalization in Asia, changing constellations of Southeast Asia, And I love this one, the title, Brave New Multipolar World, Emerging Economies, Globalization and Development. So there's no question you're the expert on the complexity of Asia. And in regards to China, especially, you can tell us what we need to know as China moves into what, as you say, is the brave new multipolar world. So China's development over the last few decades has been momentous. And yet its further course hinges, as you tell us, on challenges that cross many terrains. And since China is now the world's largest economy and its population is a fifth of all humanity, the stakes are really big for all of us. So let's talk about what's on the mind of many people who have an interest in China, and that's the current downturn, or as some people like to say, the slowdown in the Chinese economy. What's happening and how is this impact being felt? In a certain sense, slowdown is ordinary because, one, the economy has become a lot larger, so a lower percentage of increase is still an increase on a much larger unit. Mm -hmm. Second, we should consider in which areas the slowdown occurs. If the slowdown is in coal and steel and old industries, it is to be welcomed, although it poses problems of transition, and it is part of a shift in development model or in growth model that China has been undertaking since around 2003. China, Chinese government, leading party, have been anticipating experience and anticipating rising protectionism in Western countries, has been experiencing um, that wherever it imports something, the price increases of that product, so it costs them more to to, uh, get inputs from manufacturers than they then exports. And so they have wanted to shift the development model from exporting cheap manufacturers 
to um, quality manufacture, so go up the ladder of value added mm -hmm. and technology, and secondly, shift from export-led growth to investment-led growth and gradually consumption-led uh, growth. So, so it, is, it is part of a wider reorientation. So, so, John, will China be able to rebalance its economy, which, as you say, is now heavily tilted or at least intentionally tilted uh, towards investment right now? Are they going to be able to rebalance the economy? What's your prognosis? What a nice question, Susan. That's a <laughs> lovely question, because this is the question that people in China are wondering about on a daily or, or weekly basis, right? Um, one, in relation to investment, it is massively clear to everybody that China has been over-investing with a lot of um, industries in which they are leading, but they're not very productive. Um, with building towns or cities that, or, and, and roads that aren't used and cities where people don't uh, live. So um, here, one major issue is really, really major issue is the new initiative since 2013, One Belt, One Road, in which they externalize the investments which were first focused on China itself, and now they're externalizing it to Central Asia, to Southeast Asia, with roads, railroads, high-speed rail, pipelines, new ports, uh, enormous. And this, Susan, let me add a point, a point here. Mm -hmm. In a historical sense, for China, but also for the world, this is a major historical initiative. China is investing in the order well over $2 trillion in the regional economy and in the world economy, demonstrating a, a commitment and a confidence in the regional and, and global economy in relation to which the Marshall Plan of the United States, 1950s Europe, and the Alliance for Progress, um, 1960s Latin America, Caribbean, pale in significance. Mm -hmm. Because this commitment is far, far larger. Now, in China, that is, by economists, that is, criticism and skepticism of this commitment because they argue, gosh, so many investments here in China aren't all that uh, great. Overseas investments, some big projects have failed. Um, <clears throat> and the more you commit outside, the more you are exposed to many kinds of risk that you cannot anticipate political risk economic risks, security risks, etc. So, you know, at the conference in the 
in Shanghai in June with, with economists, I was speaking in praise of and with certain enthusiasm about One Belt, One Road, and the reaction was very, very uh, dim. Um, these were economists now who were mostly focused on China. Um, but nevertheless, I find this of enormous importance, and I would add a consideration, mm -hmm. <coughs> namely <coughs> the timeline. The timeline of most commentary analysis is focused on return on investment, which in the world of finance is between one and five years. Because one year is the period in which stocks are held normally, and five years is very long. In economics, it's a bit longer, five to ten years. Sociology goes further still, but the consideration is that China is not China ruling party, etc., is, is focusing on a very long timeline. Um, first of all, in China itself, uh, it, it's, its goal of harmonious society achievement is now set at 2020. Uh, meaning there is a greater balance within the Chinese economy. And secondly, part of the reasoning is that, oh, well, governments come and go, dictators come and go, but roads and ports remain. So they have a wider view part of which maybe has to do with their engineering back, background. Many of the people in the central committee of the party are engineers of background, and, and, and engineering has a, has a different vision. Um, so the ordinary return on investment categories do not really apply. They have a wider horizon. And that's consistent with China in general, historically, having a long-term view. So let's go from the truly global uh, perspective to one that is at the very other extreme, and that is individuals in China. We know that exponential growth in China has created this growing social inequality with a newly entitled middle class. What are the ramifications of that? Is China going to be able to turn this social inequality around? Is it even intending to? And if so, how does it do that? Susan, I think this is a really central, essential question. Um, China's growth path in 1980, as the report in the Economist notes, as one of the most equal societies in the world, now it is approximately the most unequal society in Asia, on a par with Singapore and, and Hong Kong, with a Gini coefficient of uh, 0.46. Um, it is not the most unequal society in the world, that is for Haiti and South Africa and Brazil, which are higher still in the 
in the 50s. But 0.46 is, is, is major. It's a major cause of concern in China. And the variables for addressing this include rebalancing urban and rural differences, changing or dismantling the Hukou residence permit system um, so that migrant labor within China has greater rights, addressing the concerns in the poor provinces, Xinjiang, Yunnan province, and the industrial north, which is now deindustrializing, where the traditional industri industries are, Harbin and, and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, many of these are part of the Harmonious Society Outlook and Program. One, why is this important? Um, if China is 20% of the world population, if China is the world's largest economy, if China is having major and growing momentous influence in Asia, because Asia is gradually trans transforming in a China-centric economy, yes. if China is de facto the leader of world trade and will soon become, after the demise of the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership, um, the TPP, mm -hmm. um, will become the actual leader of world trade, then its internal conditions will have major impact also externally. So can China make this transformation? Are the processes set in motion in the 11th, 12th, and 13th five-year plans geared to uh, doing this? The answer is, it is work in progress. Mm. And there is no certainty in China, can they do this? And externally, Ming Xinpei came out with an interesting book on crony capitalism in China. And he argues that the relationship between essentially a Leninist state structure, secondly, a market economy, and thirdly, uncertain property rights, makes cronyism and corruption a structural feature. And that means that Xi Jinping's anti-corruption drive, important as it is in various ways, um, probably has a barrier built, built in that has to do with property rights and with the party structure. So there's a potential ceiling on its effectiveness. I get that. So... You mentioned this whole urbanization thing, and I suppose one of the big questions is, will urbanization contribute to this rebalancing that China's trying to do, or is it going to add to the imbalance? It sounds like that may be part of the TBD, to be determined, or do you have a view that there are some That's, signs? Well, Susan, in China, there is a big discussion about this. Mm -hmm. 
And one argument is, um, one of the colleagues uh, was giving a talk in, uh, in Shanghai in, in, in June says, um, China should not be building new towns and new cities, but should rather build on the existing metropoles and big cities and improve their con conditions in, in, in mass transit services and so on and so forth. Um, <clears throat> so there are big reservations about that. Now, part of the <laughs> urbanization drive is to make more of the rural population urban, because as an urban po population, there uh, consumption level, prosperity level will go up, and part of it is what they call in China townization, mm -hmm. not not building cities, but turning villages into towns. Um, some of it is successful, some of it is is disastrous, and you need to be uh, a China insider to to make an assessment and strike a balance. But at the end of the day, these are, are discussions that are taking place in China. Yes, I, I hear that from a number of people. Now, some say, and you're among them, that China's brightest and wealthiest are leaving the country, as you say, when the rich leave, and in this case they go mostly to Australia, Canada, or the United States, uh, a society that can't keep its elite home is not in good shape. That was something I read that you said, and I thought, that's pretty interesting. Tell us more about that. And is that as big an issue as some think it is? The secession of the rich, the wealthy middle class feeling insecure politically, economically, environmental issues, educational issues, about conditions in China, moving overseas when they can afford it for their children to have better education and so forth and better opportunities, that is a really serious sign, serious trend, and it is related to the trend of capital flight, which Chinese government is very, very concerned about how much money is leaving the country. Um, so this is one of the key issues where China has to rebalance and act swiftly. Um, a part of it is establish greater sense of security and certainty within China, rule of law, um, improve legislation and the court system so that ordinary citizens, individuals have greater redress and a greater sense of security. Well, now that brings up a question because it appears that individual citizens of China have become more vocal, although Westerners view Chinese as generally reluctant to do that, and they read about punishment to those who take on the government. But it does seem to be, at least to me, that um, China is listening to certain growing unrest. Certainly, its efforts towards pollution seem as if they've in some ways been responsive to people's complaints about it. Um, I guess my, that's a two-pronged question. One is, is this true that that Chinese citizens are individually feeling more confident about speaking up. Maybe I'm wrong about that. And then secondly, 
especially regarding pollution. Is China going to manage to bring pollution under control? Because that is one of the big issues, although there are a lot of them. Well, yeah, look, uh, Susan, a charming feature of our conversation is that you asked me about the future. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that is the you know um, prediction, as they say. Prediction is difficult, especially when it concerns the future. <laughs> That's a good. That's a good point. And yes, you're right. That's what I am doing. And if we knew all the answers to this, we'd be we'd be uh, rich indeed. Because no one has been able to answer some of these questions. But I just wondered, with your great perspective, is this pollution issue? It seems to me that if China decided it wants to take it on, it can. Is that true? Look, already China is greening enormously. There are huge investments in solar energy, in wind energy, and in some respect, China is becoming a, a, tech, a technological leader, um, producing more efficient, more cheaply, etc., etc. Second, with the United States, the Trump administration uh, less committed or no longer committed to environmental. Uh, accords such as the Paris Accord, China has stepped up and said we are committed to this and and to lead in 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 this. And no doubt this is quite quite serious. Now, to what extent they can quickly enough rebalance so that. The coal industries in the Northeast um, are tuned down, and um, hazardous pollution in Beijing, etc. It's in the news in these days, can be addressed. There are other interests on the table. Uh, some of these old industries are state-owned enterprises sure. and are politically powerful, influential. So. It is an assessment within the internal battlefields and institution. It's an institutional and political struggle. And how the cookie crumbles, uh, insiders know, uh, is difficult to, to say. But it's a big issue. So for those, we know that some people are leaving, as you indicated. But for those who remain in China, some would say that a crucial requirement, maybe even more crucial than ever before, is that China innovates in order to solve these big, pressing, huge issues like pollution, like health care, like we could name nine or ten of them. Um, some say the Chinese view innovation differently than the West. It, first of all, do you think it's true that it's really innovation that's going to have to be required here? And if that's so, where is it going to come from? Susan, all innovation, let's distinguish quickly two major dimensions, a technological or an engineering sense and an institutional sense. On the technological engineering side, innovation in China is growing exponentially, is hugely impressive. I have visited um, a science park uh, near Shang, Shang, Shanghai, 
And this represents, when you see all that, waves upon waves of long-term government investment, five-year plan, five-year plan, five-year plan, creating pools of science, um, scientists and technologies and, uh, and industries on an enormous and phenomenally impressive scale. Um, and there are the numbers of, of patents are increasing and the output is formidable. Take into account that when we talk, for instance, about high-speed rail, in a few years' time, China has managed with technological imports and technological borrowing, as uh, usual, always happens that way, uh, to be as efficient, but also 50% cheaper, ballpark, than the old producers, Kawasaki, Siemens, Alstom. So China delivers. In the engineering and the technological sense, China delivers and will de deliver. There's no question about that. Now, if we talk about innovation in the soft sense, the innovation of institutions balancing state, market, and society, those are in social science, these are the big three. And success, societal success hinges on the balance of the big three. And as you know, in liberal market e economies, this balance has been enormously out of whack uh, with market forces leading too much, especially finance, countervailing forces, trade, trade unions and so forth, having been hollowed out, inequality increasing tremendously, which has led in this year, 2016, to an implosion in liberal market economies, or with Brexit is an expression, and the election of Trump is an expression, the referendum, the, the rejection of the referendum in Italy. So liberal market economies do not have a good balance. Mm -hmm. State-led market economies, China, do not have a good balance either. Coordinated market economies, Germany, Nordic Europe, Scandinavia, Japan, have a bit better balance, namely they represent a round table of government, capital forces, and labor and society and consumers. <clears throat> but to what extent their policy space is actually being utilized, um, they have been very much influenced during the past 20, 20, 30 years by liberal market economies and liberal principles. So you see a certain impasse in Europe, in the European Union, etc. So all big, we have three types of market economies, the liberal market economies, United States and UK especially, and they are in trouble. 
the coordinated market economies, more balanced, uh, more durable, more resistant to crisis, but in a bit of an impasse, and that impasse actually can work to an to an advantage. Time time will will tell, and state-led market economies, of which China is the big one, um, must also re rebalance. Now, rebalancing has arrived at crisis proportions in the United States and the UK, and in a certain way, you could say that with an election of Trump. The United States is moving from a liberal market economy towards a state-led market economy. It has the presidential system anyway, in which the president, the leader, um, certainly occupies the, the, the front stage. What um, state-led market economy like China must must do is rebalance and give more expression to 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 social forces, um, not just state or market, but state market so society. That is a matter of institutional innovation. Mm -hmm. Can they do that with the Leninist party system? That is on the table. So there are a lot of big challenges here. And let's say that um, China's premier called you up tomorrow, Jen, and said, I'd like your advice on which issues, because I've got a lot of them in front of me, on which issues should I focus? What would your answer be? I would ask him first, how much time do I have? <laughs> Great answer. Um, second, I would say, you know, if he would say, well, 15 minutes or, or what, <laughs> um, I would say, one, focus on institutions, focus on law, give greater platform to um, civic action, civic forces, trade unions, and so forth, and um, establish clearer, if you are serious about combating corruption, especially at the local government level, the village level, etc., etc., establish clear property rights and boundaries for also local officials. Well, now, when you talk about the, the uh, when you say focus on civic forces, that sounds to me, if I were the premier, that would be a scary thing to, to unleash because that means you give lots of voice in a really big uh, population to forces that you can't necessarily control. How do they get that balance? Or am I just being uh, pessimistic about that? Well, Susan, allow me here to step back for a minute. I am reading Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, The Economist, uh, New York Times, etc., etc. And a general sense I have in 
Western views that one of their background assumptions, their, the software of ideas that they work with is, in short, convergence theory. In time, all societies will converge on capitalism, democracy, and modernity. And they then assume, more or less, that their societies, because they are more advanced, are the model in this. And in American political science, for instance, there is kind of assumption when a society grows, the middle class becomes more prosperous, their prosperity leads to democracy because they earn more, they pay more taxes, they want accountability. Hmm. And this is, so to speak, part of the American dream. And it's, it's a utopia. And then in relation to China, then people look at China and they kind of, are we there yet? Where this will, uh, will happen? And I find this quite wrong and quite biased. Uh, first of all, simply, it is not true. When you look at it historically, also in contemporary times, middle classes often choose for stability or for strong men. Look at Egypt, when the Muslim Brotherhood was knocking on the door, Egyptian middle classes said, nah, we'll go for military government. Look at Thailand, when the red shirts were demonstrating and protesting in Bangkok, then middle class in Bangkok and the south of Thailand said, nah, we'll opt for the military and the monarchy. Look at France in the 19th century. Marx wrote about it, the 18th Brunner of, uh, of, of, of Bonaparte. Look at Germany, Austria, Italy in the 1930s with turmoil. People opted for fascism or Nazism. So Stability is an important point. Then the next question is, middle class, okay, which middle class? There are actually middle classes. There is an old middle class and a new middle class. There is an urban middle class and a rural middle, middle, middle class. So middle classes are diverse in terms of age, in terms of what they view as nationalism in terms of ethnicity, ideology, religion, etc. So uh, what the middle class does and wants depends on all sorts of other circ circumstances. Um, a middle class follows, according to old scenarios, um, leading forces if the expectations are being met or exceeded. Chinese party so far has been able to do that, but the tipping points are therefore all to, to see. Pollution, industrial decline, corruption, and um, 
can they re rebalance? It's a big question. We we talked about it uh, before. Now, um, let us assume that with the 11th, 12th, 13th, five-year plans, many variables are on the table. Because, listen, Susan, we are talking here about Huge. Yeah. a state. It's not just a fifth of the world population. It's also the oldest continuous state in the world. An early signal is, it's very plain, of course, we cannot assess this according to the scenarios and expectations of a society that is 200 years old, <laughs> the United States. It will become... So they are rebalancing. They will re rebalance. It is very unlikely that their re rebalancing would take the form of the kind of scenarios of much younger societies. They, they have access to far greater resources, historical resources, much greater depths of the historical field than uh, Western societies have. Um, so with these notes of caution, they will rebalance and they will surely rebalance in a different way than the West expects or anticipates. I, I think that you're absolutely right about that. It sounds to me as if given all that you know about the challenges that China faces, that you are nonetheless optimistic, cautiously optimistic about its future. And I think your point is well taken. Whatever that is, it's not going to look like the way cultures like ours, which are so young and um, and so different, um, may expect or anticipate. I, I think that's a point well taken. So am I right about your being optimistic, ultimately, about China? <laughs> um, I, uh, years ago, I met a, a Chinese colleagues, um, and we were chatting a bit at a conference, and, um, and, and she said, brightly said, oh, well, when China is okay, the world will will be okay because China is a fifth of the world population, and because when China is successful and prosperous and stable, the world will be successful and prosperous and stable. There are in in China vast resources of commitment, drive, industriousness, and smarts that uh, we are probably underestimating. Next, uh, con consider this. If China's neighboring countries in Asia, Japan, Korea, Southeast Asia, Cent Cent Central Asia, join the China-centric system, their working assumption also is, yes. well, when China is okay, Asia is okay. Uh, they're in that boat. Now, that boat has management difficulties, and the three top ones are probably corruption, pollution, information control, and they're kind of interdependent and everything. 
Can they re rebalancing? Can they rebalance? Everybody is watching, and let's watch closely. And in the process, my senses, I am, I'm deeply impressed with enormous initiatives like One Belt, One Road, New Silk Roads, Maritime Road. Because what is actually happening, Susan, is that when China withdrew from the world scene in the 14th century. Zhang He had his major voyages all the way to China, uh, to, to Africa and the Persian Gulf. What Xi Jinping does since 2013 in major announcements, very consciously and reflexively, he is taking up the threat of the Silk Roads and of the voyages of Zhang He. Remember, they far preceded Columbus and Vasco da Gama yes. and all that. Yes. And reconnects China with the world. And they are not just babbling about this. They are putting $2 trillion on the table. Already the China... Uh, the Development Bank has committed a trillion dollars in 900 projects in 60 countries. They did last uh, a year or, or in June of the, of the... So the commitment is phenomenal and the smarts are great. Well, I think, you know, Jen, I can see why you've got four different books coming out next year that circle different aspects of this big, huge topic because you really are knowledgeable. I feel that um, it, this, is, this is like uh, sitting at a great buffet, and I've just been able to nibble at little parts of it, and I really appreciate your, your contribution to this. It's been really a delight to share your perspective on Asia and the West, and um, I'm eager for, for more of this to be continued. So appreciate your participation. Thank you, thank you. It's been great. Thanks a lot, Susan. If this is the first time you're listening to Asia and the West podcast, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. There are plenty more conversations with fascinating people from where this came. And please rate and review us on iTunes. As you may know, iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more credit we get, the more people can discover us. And please tell your friends. Word of mouth is a powerful way to spread the word about the Conversation 360 podcast and this Asia and the West series. There's more information on our website, www.conversation360podcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at Conv360Podcast. That's C-O-N-V 360 Podcast. And my personal Twitter is at Susan W. Bird, spelled B-I-R-D. Thanks for listening.